I loved our conversation today with Dr. Daisy Robinson. I love language and I love these visual ideas. And she described dealing with menopause as right now, it's like whack-a-mole with each symptom. And I just never forget that because it does feel sometimes, and we hear this from you, we hear this from patients, we hear this from other clinicians, that you're dancing as fast as you can and you fix one thing and then another thing becomes so disruptive. Well, I think what I took out of it the most is this is the most optimistic person in the space who just is full of hope and dream when it comes to preventing poor aging of our ovaries and all of the health consequences that this may have. So it's really fascinating to hear about her work and the sequential steps she intends to make. And I love when you are with a doctor or scientist and you do this mind meld of all the complex <laughs> underbelly that I probably should have paid more attention to in high school and college. We're excited to bring Daisy on and take a listen. Welcome to the Business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so excited to have our guest today, Dr. Daisy Robinson, who is the co-founder and CEO of Oviva Therapeutics. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so excited because you are a serious scientist. I don't I spend much time with molecular biologists. I don't know that you do either, Alyssa. And we had the opportunity to meet recently at a women's health conference. And it just, your energy and this unique approach, not going to say I understood all the science, was really intriguing. So we wanted to have you on and learn more. So why don't we start with a little bit about your background and how you got to be the co-founder of this company and how it really builds on we're a student of for so long. Sure. Like for many people, it's really a personal story that led me to where I am now. I love science. I've always been a curious person. Family history of disease is what pushed me into science, but it wasn't until I was 31 that I really launched my career into women's health in particular. I had already completed a PhD in human biology and translational medicine at Harvard. And I had gotten out of a long-term relationship and was 31 thinking about my options I've always wanted to have a family. So I decided to visit a reproductive endocrinologist who's, who was married to a mentor of mine and just get an understanding of what should I be thinking about? I'm a single 31-year-old woman. I have a career I'm pursuing. I want a family. How do I make smart choices? And in that meeting, I was shocked to learn just how ignorant I was about the inner workings of my own body in general, but also as a scientist with a PhD in human biology and a female person. I was just horrified. And this sent me down a whole path of self-education around how do our bodies work? What are the different transitions throughout our lives? Obviously, we all hear about puberty when we're in school and there's some talk of fertility. I think that's growing now, but there's no real structure to how women learn about the different chapters of their life as dictated by their hormonal health and their ovarian health and reproductive health. So... It was really serendipitous 
how I came to found this company, Oviva Therapeutics. It really started with that conversation in the reproductive endocrinologist's office. And the next inflection point was just a casual coffee I had with a man named James Pyre, who's the CEO of our parent company, Cambrian. And they run a longevity-focused company. I brought up the concept that no one ever talks about ovaries in the context of longevity, despite the fact that they're the fastest aging organ and their decline leads to negative health outcomes for women universally. And all women undergo menopause if you live long enough. It's fascinating because we have this conversation all the time when you hear how difficult it is to raise money in this space. And there's always someone in the room, sometimes it's me, who says, do you need a bigger market than 50% of the people on the planet for something that they experience that for some never ends? So it's a lifelong, once you hit it, it's a lifelong experience. And so I get it as a scientist and as a woman, I'm not a scientist. And obviously Alyssa is a physician. Mm -hmm. I am still amazed at sort of the state of education that we find where people would look at a map of the female anatomy and have no idea what's what. And it's part of a big breakdown in education, which we talk about at some point. But going back to your point that I did not know that the ovary was the fastest aging organ in the body. Yeah. See, the doctor and the scientist are nodding. Its function declines in some cases, decades earlier than other tissues. So if you look at a little chart on when organs decline, your cardiovascular system, your lungs, your liver, they all start going down at midlife. And then usually there's a precipitous decline in your 80s, 90s. But the ovaries, once you approach menopause, they just go off a cliff. And there is a transition period. Your listeners are familiar with the menopausal transition and that fact that there's a series of years, although it's usually sort of retrospectively defined. But once that happens, that whole organ is shut down and all of the systems that it talks to in the body, which are many, also get dysregulated, leading to increased risk for various diseases and disorders and just a loss of vitality, which to me is really the important thing is the ability for a woman to feel vibrant in her life and to continue doing the things she cares about and having the energy to devote to the things she cares about. To mention fertility. So you bring up such a good point. In my office, we often talk about the fact that your ovaries age with you, your eggs age with you. You don't generate new ones the way a man may generate new sperm every couple of days. So I think that's actually a a very big deal that to your point about what we're educated about, even during puberty, we never hear that really. Number two, the age where we start to talk about fertility or the decline in fertility or to get a head start, a jump start on your fertility if you're interested in pursuing that is really gone down. 40 was always that, oh, this is the age you've now reached. And then it was 35. And now it's actually 32, where Mm. we start to have the conversation about, are you interested in freezing your eggs or freezing embryos? So tell us about how is what your company doing translating to the clinical frontline care, if it does yet? Yes, sure. So it's a multi-step process because really what we hope to achieve in the long term is offering a suite of therapeutics that can help women manage the menopausal transition, but really address ovarian function. So the goal is to extend ovarian function. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to build a clinical trial around. So the approachable step towards that is starting with more short-term acute indications. So what we're approaching now with our first program that we're developing is women who are poor responders to IVF. And so they've probably gone through a couple of cycles had a very small number of eggs or a few or zero eggs retrieved. 
And the drug that we're developing would essentially enhance the number of eggs that can be captured during an ovarian stimulation cycle. And that would be the first way that we enter the clinic just to establish safety, efficacy, and really ultimately that what we think the drug is doing, which is modulating ovarian reserve and the depletion of the ovarian reserve is doing just that. Longer term, we'd want this to look more like a chronic preventative treatment that someone could opt into if it felt right for them, similar to the way many women are currently on oral contraceptives, a daily pill to manage their contraception. My absolute dream would be that us, a number of other companies, have a variety of means that women can engage with different ways to manage not just the symptoms of menopause, but actually the onset of menopause and all of the factors that influence that and the quality of life at that time. So this is our first stab at it, so to speak. And we're feeling really optimistic because the science is really strong. There's decades of really beautiful academic work by my co-founder, David Pepin, and his mentor, Pat Donahoe, who's also a co-founder of Oviva. And we're just chugging away. So I'm assuming you're working on prescription drugs, but the question to me is like, why not just use estrogen? I mean, I know it's not in vogue right now, although it seems to be coming back in vogue. Is there any thought to just replacing the function rather than something else? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think we do need better options with estrogen and more attention to that. I think we all are somewhat familiar with the Women's Health Initiative and how that led to a lot of people not getting the care that they would really benefit from. My argument would be that Unfortunately, across women's health and female physiology in general, there's just so many black boxes and unknowns. And right now, the best solution we have for women going through menopause is HRT with either estrogen or progesterone or combination. And there's a myriad of other hormones that are in play to allow for our homeostasis and well-being, most of which we don't have very well-defined roles for and throughout our physiology. And so part of the rationale is instead of plugging in something that we know we lose, how do we keep things that we know work going? (laughs) And so I don't know this to be true because there's such a lack of knowledge in this area, unfortunately, because of so much attention being focused on male physiology, both in lab animals being tested, leading up to clinical development, and also in male people who were the vast majority of participants in clinical trials up until 1993, when women were mandated to be included in clinical trials. And so I think a lot of it is just expanding our understanding of female physiology and what really is going on, which we just, we don't know. And even in the work that we're doing, there's so many unanswered questions. It's it's hard to move forward, which is what all of women's health is butting up against. There's so much basic research that we don't have on hand, basic information about variability between women and their cycles and different phases of the cycle and how that changes across people and how it looks for different women to go through menopausal transition. There's some data on that. We know that different People of different backgrounds experience menopause differently, but there's not a lot of granularity to that. And I would love to see over time as we continue to do this work and more funding comes into this space, that we start getting more granular both at the population level so that a woman who's my age, I'm 35 now, can have some predictive measures as I approach what's the average age of menopause, 52 roughly, and know to some degree what is my experience likely to be? When might it happen? Is it going to be in five years time and 10 years time? Is there a way that I can learn that and start taking steps at the appropriate time and steps that are interventions that are appropriate based on the predictive that measures for me? We see this in cancer biology now. You can do genetics tests. There's some blood screening you can do. We've come a long way there. And I think we'll have that for women's health. I think we're just at the very early stages of that. 
It's really interesting when you say that in terms of the data and so much of what we're collecting is being created and measured and researched and designed by companies. We hear the downside, obviously, around is that information going to be kept private, but we now have billions of data points on women's cycles. We have billions of data points on fertility. And when we talk about reproduction, one of the challenges, and I'm sure you've heard this expression, is that investors used to just focus on bikini medicine, but it's so much more. What you described when you're talking about ovarian function and the outcome is vitality. You can't say it's specific to a specific life stage. But with that, I also have another question, and maybe it's both. Is the goal staying vital longer? Is the goal perhaps delaying the onset of menopause? Is the goal maybe making the onset less disruptive as it is for so many women? What is the holy grail here in terms of the science? In my view... Everyone will have their own opinion, but my opinion and the position of Oviva is what you said prior to your question, which is how do we sustain vitality for women? I think there's a lot of different ways that we can get there. I think a part of it is allowing for there to be options so that women have agency to choose what's right for them. Because I I do not think this is going to be a one pill suits all, so to speak. And women are going to want different things for their bodies and their experience. And I think it also gets into this strange semantic zone where when you think about menopause, again, that's retroactively diagnosed right after you haven't had cycles for 12 months. And it's not so much that's problematic. And of course, many women actually look forward to that. It's the physiological dysregulation that's paired with that's problematic. And I think that it's harder to address all the symptomology, whack-a-mole, rather than either having what I would call a healthy menopause, which is you still go into a state where you're no longer having reproductive capacity, you're no longer cycling or having menstruation, but you also still have skin and hair and that feel good to you. And you can still have intimacy with your partner that's not painful and you don't have mood disorders and hot flashes and the variety of symptoms that can be experienced by women for years during and after the menopausal transition. In my view, it's really creating a set of options that is a sort of choose your own adventure for women that allows them to pursue what feels like it supports their vitality. So that might be a later onset of menopause. It might be that it changes what that onset means and changes what that transition is physiologically, but you're still in menopause formally by the medical diagnosis standards. Here's today's hot flash. At birth, people with ovaries are born with approximately 1 million eggs. And by the time puberty is reached, only about 300,000 eggs remain. I know this isn't scientific. You're playing whack-a-mole with symptoms, but I want to throw it over to Alyssa. You see patients every day who are complaining of these symptoms. Do you feel a little bit like you're playing whack-a-mole? Do you have to zero in on the most disruptive one? What Daisy's talking about is a whole new approach, but we're not quite there yet. So In terms of what you do now, do you sometimes feel like you're actually doing whack-a-mole? You resolve one symptom and then something else becomes very intrusive? Yeah. I mean, we're putting out fires where we have to put them out, literally and figuratively. So first we're treating irregular bleeding if necessary. Then we're treating hot flashes and night sweats if necessary. Not everybody goes through these symptoms in a distressing way. The vaginal dryness and the intimacy issues come about a little bit later, but certainly we deal with that very regularly. I am very much appreciating the things we don't see on the outside. For example, all the information that has evolved about 
the earlier menopause, the higher chance of cardiovascular disease. I mean, this is not something we're seeing. I hate to say it's not as sexy to talk about as like some of the other issues, but prevention of heart disease is a really big deal. And right now, the only real preventative or interruptive types of behaviors that we can recommend regularly are lifestyle modification, dietary manipulation, exercise, stress reduction, getting enough sleep, that type of thing. But could you imagine if this sort of almost anti-aging really phenomenon could come about in the form of a pill maybe? And so it's really pretty fascinating. On the other hand, do you ever feel like you're overstepping your bound? You're fooling with mother nature, I should say, only because it's really quite profound when you think about it on that level. I think it's a good question and completely reasonable. And again, it's partly why I tend to frame what we're doing as part of a suite of options, because I don't by any means think it's appropriate for everybody or desired by everybody. And when I think about that question as a longtime scientist, but also a Bay Area, California, semi-hippie person who doesn't <laughs> like taking Advil, but I will when the right headache comes along. <laughs> um, I like to ask myself and the asker of the question, the type of thing of was electricity part of mother nature or this sweater that's probably part synthetic. Actually, it's cashmere, but you know, sometimes <laughs> it's synthetic. And there's so many unnatural things that we interact with every day. And so I think we tend to have that question come up a lot in the context of how we interface with healthcare. And certainly I don't want to suggest that putting a Band-Aid on is going to fix anything, which is partly why I don't really like focusing on the symptomology and more so think about, we know our ovaries are declining in function and we know that their function is integral to our health and well-being. And that's just a basic fact. And some people choose a more homeopathic path, but generally if you have a disease like cancer, you're not thinking like, oh, it's mother nature. It's sort of like, where do we draw the line on when we're fiddling? I think that decision belongs in the patient's hands. And I 100%. like being able to have, being able to provide an option. And in, in the evolution of the work that we're doing, big piece of it for me is also broadening the body of knowledge that we're producing around women's health. So most people know, or many people know, maybe I'm too entrenched in the system, but most drugs that are trying to be developed fail, the vast majority. Yeah. So there's a significant likelihood that what we're trying to do, at least this first tack we're taking, will fail. And in my view, it's almost not important because all the work we're doing in the process is just as important as that making it through by producing more information, both in the animals and in hopefully humans soon. And of course, also just elevating the conversation, being able to have conversations and discussions like this so that other people and women in particular can learn more about their health, but also put themselves with the right questions to ask themselves and their doctors and their families and whoever they need to make informed decisions about how they're living their lives. Absolutely. Well, I'm a major Advil proponent here in the neurotic (laughs) state of New York. So I'm just going to come clean about that. But I don't know, how long do you think is realistic for something tangible to come to market on this front for real people? I think for menopause prevention, if we're just going to call it that, because I think I won't get into the whole debate around how do we build a clinical trial around this, because that's a whole other kind of worms. And it's a really difficult, that sort of anti-aging or delaying something that's natural, like menopause, it's a really difficult thing to appropriately design a clinical trial around. With that in mind, and also under having some understanding of some of the science and technology that's at the forefront of this, 
I'd like to believe that within a 10 to 15 year time frame, we'll see at least one or two compounds in clinical trials, I would hope, if not an approval. Certainly what we're doing in the clinical path we're taking would be much sooner than that for the stepping stone disease indications that we're going to be using to both impact patients, but also demonstrate proof of concept that what we're doing is working the way we think it does. But it will be a much harder task to demonstrate that we're actually changing the fundamental nature of something that is already kind of poorly defined at the population level. So there's a lot of work to be done, both from the development point, and then also kind of the infrastructure around how our drugs approved for anything. You bring up a real thought. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I was under the impression that most FDA approved drugs actually treat a disease state or disease. Mm -hmm. And with the thought that menopause is a natural phase of life, how is that managed? And there may be no answer. It's just something that struck me by what you said. Yeah. I mean, so current therapies tend to hinge on a symptom. For example, like one of the things that we talk about, at least internally in the work that we're doing is women who experience painful periods. And so there's something going wrong that's leading to the painful periods, but the indication is the painful period itself. So it's sort of like the outcome of the thing Mm -hmm. going wrong. And I think about menopause similarly. Is it menopause that's the indication or is it this sort of dysregulated physiology on the other side? I mean, there's not nomenclature for this currently in, in the infrastructure of all of this. So that's part of the work is how do we put that forward to be an ICD code being recognized as something that is treatable? And we have some time to get there. (laughs) It sounds like whack-a-mole on a foggy night with sunglasses on. So you're wading through all this complexity. When you said 10 to 15 years out, and for folks who are listening and don't know that that is short to create an entirely new pharmaceutical or active chemical compound, we talk all the time about there's a lot of challenging things about women's health. Do you ever get frustrated? I mean, it's such a big vision. And you're so focused on it and it's still quite far away. And you Mm -hmm. talk very rationally about potential for failure, which every entrepreneur faces, but doesn't ever focus on a going forward basis. Are there moments where you feel like it's too big a boulder, whether it's systemically or economically or financially, or in terms of just having the conversation? You are coming at the intersection of so many roadblocks, and I'm wondering how you deal with the challenges because they come up all the time. I'm sure you had some today. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. You know, what I'm encouraged by is that right now and for the last, let's call it six to 12 months, I feel like I've seen, at least in the United States, a huge surge of energy around women's health and a lot more voice and presence being given to women's needs. I mean, obviously we had Roe v. Wade, overturn, which was just gutting and shocking and horrible. Like you said, there's a lot of bad things happening in the space, but I think there's also a galvanization that's occurred. So my first answer is that I feel encouraged by that. My second piece to that is there's so much to do. Like it's, it is so (laughs) daunting, but in some ways it's kind of nice because the goal is up here, right? And it's going to take forever to get there. But there's so many little wins along the way because there's so much that hasn't been done, which is also completely infuriating, but I've (laughs) channeled that fury into the work. So like my fury is constantly raging, but it plugs into tackling each of these things. I love that. And it it works for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
You are quite the glass half full type of gal. Love this. <laughs> Do you have any other pipeline dreams that you're thinking about for Oviva Health at this point? Or it's it sounds like you've got your plate pretty full. Oh, yeah. I mean, echoing some of what I said earlier, I think the ultimate goal of providing choice to women is where we're headed. But there's so much that's exciting on the path there for me, which in part is the academic in me. Most of my history, my career is in academia. And there's so many unanswered questions. So a big piece of it is cool studies can we do along the way? Some of them will directly relate to business activities. And some of them might be a bit tangential, but there's a lot of energy around it. And I'm obviously a very passionate advocate. So I think we can get the funding we need to do those studies. And to your point, Rachel, there's a lot of this work happening in private companies in part because it's been easier to get the funding there lately relative to academic work. So I'm very excited about that. And then I think also the third piece is just the story component and the conversation. I'm so thrilled to be able to be here speaking with both of you and to be able to continue not just talking about Oviva's work, but just the nature of this field and how it's changing and dreaming up together what could be possible for us and then putting the pieces together because it's the motivation and to and community that's allowing for this new future to be ushered in. And I'm just excited to be part of it and want to invite everyone in who wants to participate. <laughs> well, that's a great place to end. And one of the reasons we love doing this so much is because we meet people like you who are so passionate and are talking about things that most people can't even envision. And when I think of the people in women's health as this growing army, I, for one, am thrilled that you're part of the infantry who is trying to win this battle. So we wish you continued success. We will be watching you Absolutely. and cheering you on for sure. It's really exciting work. Thank you so much. So great to be here. I really appreciated this. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.